Court is now in session. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Welcome. All right. Well, we got a week without it, and now we're talking about it again. On the hardened trade front, uh, things have been quiet on the front, and Christian Wood continues to perform well, scoring 20 in the last five games. Stir, what do you think about the hardened trade? So I actually mentioned this really early on in the season that I thought that Harden may not get traded at all just because the asking price that the Rockets wanted is justifiably really high. Everyone is basically saying that the Rockets are going to require two first-round picks and a young all-star for them to even consider moving him. So it's, it's a pretty high asking price that pretty much eliminates most teams right away. And... I already thought that Christian Wood was going to be the best teammate he would ever play with. And I think that just having these couple of games with him, seeing the production he can consistently put up, he's also getting to see that John, John Wall is also healthy. John Wall is producing, putting up 21 points, five assists per game on pretty efficient shooting, 48% from the field. So if you look at it and you're James Harden, where are you going to go? That's a better situation than what you have right now. It's not like your team is significantly underachieving compared to what a lot of other teams are doing right now. And at least you know what you've got on this team. So I just continue to believe that at this point, it's looking more and more likely that James Harden probably isn't going to be moved, at least not this season. Yeah, I agree. Uh, For James, like you said, Wall is averaging the second highest points per game since 2016 in his career with 21.2. I, similar to you, thought that this sounded like TikTok, where it was just a lot of talk and it wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, but I, I think they're asking prices too much. However, I think that there are just some interesting teams that could trade for him by trading more of a straight up, maybe plus a first rounder in the CJ McCollum type of world, where it's CJ McCollum plus one person plus a first rounder, where it's not giving up everyone on the team like the Nets or Sixers might have to do another interesting trade partner as the season has developed that would rock the NBA is the Clippers. I think if the Clippers traded Paul George plus a first rounder to Houston, that would be something that Houston may want to do. And clearly masked Kawhi is not happy with the level of play from the Clippers. And I'm sure that that, points to Paul George because when Kawhi wasn't there, Paul George lost by 50 to the Mavericks. And then they play against Steph Curry with both of them on the floor and Steph Curry goes off, comes back from a huge deficit reminiscent of the Denver series where they just completely collapsed every single game where they had a lead. And so supposed to be an all-star defender, supposed to be shutting down people like Steph Curry. You have people double teaming, Steph Curry, and they still cannot get over the hump. So maybe it isn't that you need two defensive players similar to Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen on the team. Maybe you need to have one guy who is Kawhi, plays both ends of the floor very well, and then you have James Harden, who is the offensive octane that is going to carry you over the hump. So I think that's another interesting trade partner if both teams continue to have lower level seasons compared to what they thought they were. I think Houston's three and four right now and Clippers are barely over 500. So somebody else to keep an eye out for. Honestly, if they, 
if they were to trade Paul George after he just came out and told everyone, I want to stay here for my whole career, and he signs this big extension for 190 mil, that would be some cold-blooded stuff. But honestly, more cold-blooded things than this have happened. It is a business. The thing is, for me, I always thought that the most likely partner for them, if it was going to happen, would have been Philadelphia. I thought that the Ben Simmons trade for James Harden probably would have been what would make most sense for both sides. But given that the Sixers are having great success right now, unless the Sixers start taking a dive, they may just continue to keep on with the pieces that they have because it's been working. They're one of the only teams right now that has been able to consistently win games. It seems like everybody else is going back and forth with win one, lose one, win one, lose one. Yeah, and while having James may improve their team, I think experimenting with that and potentially rocking or breaking up a chemistry that they clearly built this last year would just be deleterious to what the Clippers are, or the Sixers rather are building. So I don't foresee that happening, at least not yet, like you said, unless they take a nosedive. On to the other right. most hyped up media event of <laughs> the year probably is going to be the most hyped up media event every single year or twice a year, how many other times these two teams will play. The Ball Bowl, the Vars, Super Bowl, LaMelo and Lonzo squared off in the battle of the balls. What do you think of their battle where LaMelo came up just short of a triple-double against his big brother? I think that this may have been the hardest day of LiAngelo Ball's life. Somewhere <laughs> LiAngelo Ball is dying inside to know that he cannot be a part of the ball bowl. And honestly, I got to give LeVar Ball credit. The guy talks a lot of crap, but at the end of the day, he did get two of his players drafted or two of his sons drafted in the lottery. And here they Top are three. playing against each other. Yeah, I know. Really impressive stuff. But basically, I think that um, what we saw first iteration of the ball bowl is something that we'll continue to see, which is LaMelo getting the better of Lonzo. I really think that LaMelo and Lonzo are very similar in a lot of ways. They basically have the exact same strengths and weaknesses as each other. They're both great distributors. They both have plus size for their position. They both are solidly athletic given the position, but deficient in shooting from the outside and general scoring can sometimes be prone to shooting slumps. But I think that it's obvious that LaMelo ball is the better ball He's already in his first year putting up more points per game on better shooting percentages than Lonzo Ball has done in four years of trying to do the same. So I think that LaMelo Ball right now is already starting out at a place where he's better than his older brother who's already been in the league a couple of years. So I think for the rest of Lonzo Ball's career, he is going to be the second ball. Yeah, I agree with that. Luckily for LiAngelo, though, he is going to the G League bubble that they're going to be hosting in Orlando. So he'll at least have a little bit of a showcase to potentially get on a non-guaranteed contract and maybe, maybe, just maybe, make it to the league. And I could see a team like New Orleans or Charlotte having one of their reserve spots for uh, LiAngelo if he does perform well, because from a family dynamic, it's helped Giannis with having his brother there um, the Antetokounmpo brothers, three of them are in the league. The fourth one, I think, is coming up through 
Greece and uh, potentially will be in the league soon as well. So I think the other ball may be in the league at some point, but it'll really be dependent on how he performs in the G League. But I agree with you. Uh, Lamelo is proving a lot of people wrong. I think you and I both thought that he was a little bit overhyped and the Hornets maybe had a bit of a reach because of the media presence for LeVar. But Lamelo has shown out this season. Uh, I think he's averaging the second most points per game. Um, he's averaging one of the highest player efficiency ratings of any of the rookies. I think he's averaging the most assists out of any of the rookies as well. And he is now the youngest player to have got a triple-double after almost getting a triple-double against his brother, gets it the next night against the Hawks. Uh, Gordon Hayward has done extremely well on that team, so it's helping LaMelo from a distribution standpoint. Um, and James Borrego, the coach of the Hornets, has been very, very impressed with LaMelo overall. One keynote on LaMelo's stats, yes, he's performing better than Monzo in every category, but he's doing so in nine minutes fewer per game. So he's being way more efficient with the ball, contributing at a much higher level and doing it on a smaller minute per game average. So very impressive from the young rookie. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to say I was one of the people that was definitely a LaMelo ball detractor. I definitely gave him no credit. And I didn't think that he was deserving of the number three pick at all. Um, after seeing what he's done this year, he's definitely overachieved and produced more than I thought he would at this point in his career, that's for sure. And to see that he's now the youngest player in NBA history to post a triple-double, which he actually now surpasses Lonzo and Luka Doncic as the youngest, that's a very impressive list to be on. LeBron James is also on that list. I just don't think that despite all these things, and, and as you mentioned, like his, his production has been great given the lack, or not the lack, but given the sample size that he has, he doesn't play that many minutes and he comes off the bench and he's producing great. But I still really believe that at the end of the day, if LaMelo Ball is your first or second best player, you're probably not going to have enough to win a championship. I think that if he's your third best player, you may have a chance if he's surrounded by great, excellent talent and shooters that can complement his skill set, which is his creation and his ability to distribute the ball, get into the teeth of the defense and use his height to be able to get great vantage points in transition and in the half court set. But the issue with him is he's always going to be the kind of guy that will be a deficient scorer. I know that his scoring right now isn't terrible. He's putting up 12.8 points per game. His shooting percentages are better than we would have expected, but if you've cast him into a role of being a primary scorer or go-to scorer, I really don't think you can count on this guy to consistently get you buckets because he doesn't have the level of athleticism or the jump shot or the strength to consistently finish inside or hit from outside. He's more the kind of guy who's an opportunistic scorer who makes great reads and he takes what the defense gives him. If the lane is there, he takes it. If the shot is there, he takes it. But he's not the guy who's going to be able to impose his will on offense. So I think that at the end of the day, I still believe that for number three, he was a little high. I think that he could potentially be on a winning championship team if he's a complimentary piece to some other great talent, but definitely not the kind of guy that I believe would be a franchise player. Yeah, well, we'll see how he pans out and how those battles continue on later this season as well as later in their careers. Steph Curry for MVP, MVP train for Steph. I was on this train to start off the season. I am 
high on Steph Curry for the rest of the season. Uh, the only people I think he's really battling with is LeBron and Luka. So it'll come down to if LeBron misses time and the Lakers continue to do well or the same for Luka, but then Steph misses time and the Warriors don't perform well. Um, I think that's what the media is going to look at overall. You've seen in a lot of the past years when Steph won it, when Derrick Rose won it, it's not always about the best player. It's whoever is most valuable to that team. Um, Steph is red hot right now. The Warriors are five and four, even though they're carrying the most regressed player in Kelly Oubre. Uh, Steph overall is having a better season from a player efficiency rating than his unanimous MVP season. He was 30.1 player efficiency rating in 2015-2016, and now he's at 30.6, so 0.5 points higher on his PER. And his three-point shooting is almost at 40%. His field goal percentage is, I think, a little under 50 at 45%. And his free throw shooting is a way over 90 at 95%. So his last five games, he's only had one game where he's under 26 points per game. The other games, 26 points, 62 points, 30 points, 38 points. And they're playing the Raptors today at 7.30, which you expect they're going to blow them out. So Steph is being extremely efficient, extremely uh, shooting extremely well and carrying the Warriors who otherwise would be left for dead right now. Yeah, to be honest with you, I was one of the people that believed that he could be a dark horse for MVP, but I didn't think it was very likely just because the difficulty for the path of, of MVP for him was just so much harder than for anyone else. He has to do so much more on way more difficult shots than anyone else, given the supporting cast that he has. This team at the beginning of the season really did look like they were going to miss the playoffs and he's got them now with a five and four record in position to potentially make the playoffs. I know it's early, but his production, as you said, is right there in line with his best season ever when he won his first regular season MVP. The thing is, I just find it really hard for him to be able to keep this up. If you look at the games that he's been playing, the difficulty on the shots that he's had to make are just otherworldly. He's had to play out of his mind for them to have a chance. It's not like that season that he won MVP where they were blowing teams out and they were sitting him in the third quarter half the time and he was only averaging like 31 minutes or 32 minutes because they had the luxury of resting him for a ton of second half because they were just beating the crap out of teams. Like this guy's literally having to put up 35, 40 points just for his team to have a chance. He literally, if he doesn't do it all, they, they can't win. And that's a lot of pressure for him to be able to do this for an entire year, knowing Clay Thompson's not coming back, knowing Kelly Oubre probably is not going to develop a shot, knowing that Andrew Wiggins is still just the same Andrew Wiggins he's been for the last three years. Honestly, it's going to be really hard for him. But if he were to continue this pace for an entire season somehow, I don't think there's any question that he would be the MVP given the circumstances and what he was able to accomplish with the pieces around him. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I do think he will end up being the MVP overall. Uh, and if not, I think it'll go to Luca. I think LeBron's going to continue to get chipped. We also have to remember, though, we're forgetting about Kevin Durant 
and Kyrie Irving, who are both dark horses to win that award too. Right now, they're both missing time for various reasons, one of which we'll get into later. But those two candidates are both averaging over 27 points a game. And basically, when they have played, they've looked unstoppable. It's just it hasn't really reflected on their team's record. But we know that these guys can turn it on whenever they want. So yeah, look out for I, Kevin Durant when he comes back. I, uh, I'm willing to put my life savings on neither of those two winning the MVP. Oh, uh, oh I, man. Might have you, to take you up on that at the end of the year. You uh, said at the beginning that the recipe for MVP is performance, narrative, team record. And two of those three, the narrative and the team record, are working against one of those players, the team record is working against the other player. So I just don't foresee in a season where both of them will likely sit out for 20 plus games in a, a bridge season, uh, as well as the team record, they're probably going to be fighting for the seventh, eighth or play in ninth seed. So I do not foresee them either getting the MVP award. All right, I'll take you on that. I'm going to go ahead and predict a Durant hot streak right around the midseason break to right the ship and get this team a top five seed. I think they're going to come in around number five. Are we going to double or nothing your Jameis bet? Because I'm pretty sure you're going to be 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah, that one didn't play out well in my favor, so hopefully this one turns out a little better. All right, moving on to our next topic. Timberwolves lost seven straight. Are they going to sell off their All-Stars? Honestly, the Timberwolves right now have to look like a buffet to other teams. They really do have some nice pieces that other teams could use. If you were to put those pieces on other teams, they could really do some damage. I mean, they have Carl Anthony Towns, who I think has the talent level to potentially be a top five player in the NBA. And they have D'Angelo Russell, a young all-star caliber point guard who has uncanny scoring ability off the dribble that is still not even 25. So they do have some nice pieces that other teams may want. The question is how high will the asking price be and how stubborn is Glenn Taylor going to be? He still probably believes somehow that they're going to make the playoffs. He was adamant at the beginning of the season that they were going to definitely make the playoffs and that they were going to contend this year. And here we are, seven losses in a row. And he's probably still trying to hold on to these guys because he knows that no free agent in their right mind would ever sign there on their own free will. So if you do have Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell leave, then you basically are left with Anthony Edwards as your foundational piece that you drafted. And let's be real, even Glenn Taylor's irrational confidence as he may be, he must be wondering if he could have made a better pick I'm not saying that Anthony Edwards is a bust already. He did have a 26-point game a couple games ago. There's flashes there. But was he really number one level good? Really don't know that. I think that it would be awesome to see Carl Anthony Towns get traded to a different situation so that we could finally see if he could ever achieve that unlimited or that unlimited potential that he's got. I think that being in an organization like the Timberwolves has really hindered his development. And I think that I would have loved to see him playing in a situation where he was being challenged and motivated to reach his full potential. Cause I think he could have been maybe the best player in the league. If he could have just focused 
and brought out his full potential. I think that if the Heat somehow, I mean, obviously it's not going to happen because he's already burned the bridge with Butler, but it would have been awesome for the Heat to pair Adebayo with Towns. I would have rather seen that for them than a Beal trade or a Harden trade or any of that, because could you imagine having Bam Adebayo and Carl Anthony Towns, two big guys who both have the lateral quickness to switch on the perimeter, also have the ability to pass, distribute. Carl Anthony Towns can shoot threes. They'd complement each other perfectly. It would be crazy to see that. Yeah, I I think it's a bit of a overreaction to say that they're going to completely blow it up right now. I think the more likely scenario is they're going to fire uh, Saunders. And on top of that, you have to look at who's played this season. Carl Anthony Towns, like you just talked about, amazing player. He's only played three out of their nine games this season. So he's been on the court for a third of their games. Um, D'Angelo Russell wasn't healthy to start the season. They've had several players start games throughout the season. Juancho Gomez starting four, Josh Kogi starting three. So they just haven't had consistency from a starting lineup perspective. Um, I don't know if they're going to necessarily write the ship, but I don't also know if this is a good track record for them in terms of needing to blow up everything. Um, if they do blow it up, I would love to see Cat go to either the Nuggets or the Trailblazers. I think you can trade from the Trailblazers, Nurkic plus another player, plus a couple uh, first round protected picks. From the Denver side, I think that pairing him with Jokic would be elite, similar to what you're talking about with Bam. Um, Jokic can pass the ball well, uh, play from really anywhere on the floor, similar to Carl Anthony Towns. And I feel like uh, Mike Malone would really unlock his game. The question I have from the Timberwolves is effort, and it always has been effort, and I think that's why Jimmy had such a rocky time there. Uh, when Tibbs was there, they weren't playing well. They didn't really show a lot of effort, and clearly it rubbed a lot of people, <clears throat> Jimmy, the wrong way. When you look at the Knicks, having Tom Thibodeau with a, on paper, much worse lineup top to bottom, the Knicks are now five and four. They're fighting for a spot in the playoffs with a team that as constructed shouldn't be anywhere near there. And you have to think, is this a product of the players on that team buying into tip system, showing effort, doing well versus the Timberwolves who probably didn't buy into a system nor want to perform at a high level night in and night out. Yeah, honestly, it blows my mind why it is that they underachieve so much. I think it's just being in that organization just sucks the life out of you or something like that. But it's, it is it is a little premature. It is a little early. But I, I'm going to go ahead and predict that this team, as you said, they're reintroducing some of their best players right now. I think they're going to right the ship somewhat. They're going to improve. They're obviously not going to continue to, uh, to lose indefinitely. Right now they've lost seven in a row. They're obviously going to start winning some games. But I think that basically the turnaround will amount to, at best, Best case scenario, seventh or eighth seed in the West at best. Likely going to miss it. I'd say probably ninth or tenth finish. So you have to ask yourself as a Timberwolves general manager and as a Timberwolves ownership, is that something that you're okay with? Do you want to basically compete for mediocrity where you're also going to get a mediocre pick and likely not be able to draft a difference maker because – you didn't do bad enough to get a great pick, but you didn't do well enough to actually compete. Or do you just blow it up 
and hope that you can draft a foundational piece down the road with some draft capital now that you have assets and hope that you were right about Anthony Edwards and hope that maybe you can pair him with a guy that can compliment him. So it is a tough decision to make, but luckily one that the Timberwolves don't have to make right now. They got some time to think about it. Yeah, and the thing with the Timberwolves too, Glenn Taylor every season to start the season says, I'm thinking about selling the team who's interested and I'm sure he's doing that from a media perspective to say like, this team's going to be really good this year and you're going to want to spend $3 billion to get this team versus some of the billions that have been spent in the past. And then they underperform. And then he's like, JK, I'm not selling the team. I'm a committed owner. I'm going to keep the Timberwolves here. We're going to have a great time this <laughs> season, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sure he's just dipping his toes in the water every time saying, Hey, I want to sell the team because the team's going to be good this year. And then they underperform and he's just like, darn it, that guys, I need you guys to perform so I can get some of my billions back and they don't. So I hope that they get sold. I think he's uh, just detractor from this team uh, doing well in the future. I think that the coach is also not helping their case, um, but we shall see. Moving on. The season has shown us a lot of sloppy play overall. We have teams that we didn't expect to be doing well, doing well. We have had a lot of blowouts this season. So is this parody in the NBA or is it part of the shortened offseason that's taking effect here? Honestly, I want to say I, I, I wish that it was parody because it would be kind of cool to believe that the league has achieved a level of parody where 18 to 20 teams all feel like they have a chance and are within that reach of being one of the top teams. We have 18 teams right now in the league that currently have either four or five losses through nine or 10 games. So if you look at the East standings and the West standings, like the three through nine spot in the seating are all like identical records, except for maybe like plus or minus half a game or one game. So basically everyone kind of feels like they're on even footing. Teams have had a lot of inconsistency where they'll have an amazing performance and then follow it up with a terrible one. But I think really what it comes down to is probably more so the shortened offseason effect because we didn't really notice this kind of sloppy play at the beginning of last season. And I don't really know that any new uh, implementations have been made to team building since the last collective bargaining agreement. So... I don't think that suddenly right now all these effects would just suddenly be taking hit and we're just seeing the effects of parity uh, parity rules. I think that it really just comes down to the fact that normally when you're going into a season, you have a full training camp, you have a lot of time to iron out kinks, feel out rotations and lineups. And I think you're seeing a lot of teams right now try out in live games things that probably they would have done in training camp as a test in training camp to try out. Right now, they're having no choice but to do it in the regular season because of scheduling. But I think that a lot of the basketball you're seeing right now is basketball that you probably would have never seen before because it would have never made it out of preseason. So I expect that the second half of the season, teams are going to be a lot sharper and are probably going to by then be a lot more committed to more consistent rotations and less experimentation because they'll know what they have by then or what they need. So I think it really is just sloppy play due to lack of practice. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the uh, overall you've seen 
teams who weren't in the bubble playing better probably because their guys are more rested than you've seen other teams that were in the bubble like the Heat who took a step back compared to last year and it is probably because of everybody being exhausted but also just trying to figure out the, their identity um you have like you said teams that are experimenting with lineups we just talked about the Timberwolves and the different lineups that they've had to have uh People like the Heat, who have experimented with six different lineups through the first six games to finally lock in on one that they feel comfortable with. And then a plethora of other teams that are doing the same thing across the league. Um, I think as time goes on and we're getting past that hump of like what a normal preseason would have been, people are going to start really showing what their team's composition looks like and seeing who meshes well with who. But I agree with you. I think that it would be nice to have this sort of parity in the NBA, but I just don't think that's the way that things are constructed right now. I do think a lot of this is given the shortened off season and teams and coaches trying to find and establish their new identity coming into the 2021 season. Definitely. I think that when you look at the standings around mid-season or shortly after mid-season, you're going to see a lot more spacing between the seedings than you do right now. Yeah, I agree. Well, time to move on to everyone's favorite segment, What's the Verdict, where I will ask you what's the verdict on several scenarios, and you will tell me whether the person is guilty or innocent. Ready to go? Ready. Let's do it. What's the verdict on the Wizards? Bradley Beal has posted consecutive 40-plus games and lost both. The Wizards hung around against the Heat with both Beal and Russell out. This team seems not to have an identity like we just talked about and cannot seem to win. Who is the guilty party here? The coach for not running the right plays or the general manager, Tommy Shepard, for constructing a bad supporting cast? Honestly, it might be a little bit of a combination of both. The thing is, it's really hard to blame, put most of this blame on the coach because in reality, if you look at this team's construction and their roster personnel, they don't have much of a chance to beat most teams. Bradley Beal is an incredible talent. The guy just went off for 60 the other day. Right now, he's actually averaging 35 points a game, 48.9% from the field, 38.6% from three. I mean, this is elite. If you look at his stats, I mean, ESPN ranked this guy the 22nd best player coming into the season. But if you look at his stat line and you don't know shame. his name, you'd guess it's a, it's a shame, honestly. If you look at his stat line, you'd think that, he was James Harden, but actually probably better because statistically he doesn't get as many assists, but he's much more efficient. He's better from most percentages than James Harden is. It just so happens that his supporting cast, they can't guard anybody. They can put up points. We saw the other day against the Heat, the supporting cast can score. They had over 70 points at halftime, and they didn't even have Bradley Beal or Russell Westbrook playing. So it's not that they can't score and they can't shoot the ball. It's that they have a ton of young guys and a bunch of shooters and nobody can defend anybody. And it seems like the coach doesn't have a, a defensive state of mind either because it seems like they don't really have any sort of communication or leader on defense. A lot of the elite defenses in the league, when you look at them, there's at least one guy that's anchoring that defense, always speaking out, calling rotations, being vocal, letting everybody know where to be. This team does not have that on defense. You look at these guys playing on defense, it's like five guys on five separate islands. And when you're Bradley Beal, I mean, as great of a talent as he is, I wouldn't say that he's an elite defender. And you can't really expect him to be 
when he's six foot three and he plays the two guard spot. Yeah, he might be able to be an elite defender when he's defending guards, but when he switches out onto threes and potentially fours, you're going to probably give up some points on those possessions. And given the fact that no one else is stopping anybody either, as many points as they score a game, they're still going to get outscored. And I think that the Wizards have to just stop being stubborn at this point and realize they've tried every experiment they could. They've locked themselves up with a bunch of contracts on this roster, which make it impossible to add an impact-free agent. They also don't have time to wait for the young pieces that they have to develop and catch up to Bradley Beal's prime window, which is right now. I think that they just have to understand that it's just not going to work. They're not going to be able to surround Bradley Beal with the right pieces in time to maximize his window. And I think they probably just have to say, hey, we gave it our best shot. But at this point, we have to get the best return that we can for him. At the end of the year, I mean, this guy may leave. We have to make sure that we get the best return that we can for him. Uh, I'll do you one better. At the end of the year, this guy will leave. Um, I saw an interesting stat line for Bradley Beal that he scored 40 points in consecutive games and lost both recently. And the last player to do that was Bradley Beal in February of 2020. <laughs> So he earlier, also lost when he scored 60. He lost when he scored 62. Yeah. And I think he was one of two players who have done that. Um, Bradley Beal also, I'm pretty sure there's another stat line that it was players who have scored 30 plus in games that have lost those games. There were 19 instances of that. And Bradley Beal had eight of them. So the guy also, I feel maybe with the exception of Clay Thompson is one of the most likable guys in the league and also doesn't complain at all, even though all of this crap happens to him on teams where he's putting up these- He's an ultimate professional. He has so much reason to complain. Like if there's so anybody much who's a that shit, I mean, think about it. Like of all the guys who demand trades, this guy probably has the most valid reasoning to want to demand a trade. And he, he comes out and he puts on a big smile and says, no, I want to be here. Oh, yes, the Wizards are great. Uh, I love D.C. Yes, I want to be here my whole career. Losing is fine, you know? The fans are great. Losing isn't that bad. It doesn't matter if I score 100, I'll still lose. But, you know, that's fine. It's great. Like, this is the kind of guy that every team wants. He's like if James Harden was, like, a respectable teammate. Yeah, I mean, you could say that about any star in the league. I think Bradley Beal, like you said, one of the most uh, respectable people should have every reason in the world to complain, but he doesn't. So I expect him to be out. I expect him to be honored significantly once he returns to the Wizards when he's with a new team, likely the Heat, uh, but we shall see. Next up, talking about players who possibly complain or want to get in the spotlight a bit too much, Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving misses a game against, uh, I forget who they played before the Grizzlies, but misses that game, then misses the Grizzlies game and does not travel down there, says he just didn't feel like playing the initial game and didn't feel like traveling with the team. Nets coach Steve Nash says that he reached out to Kyrie, but he didn't get any word back and only knows that he missed the game for personal reasons. And also apparently Kyrie texted teammates to let them know. So I would say the biggest Plus of this is that Karis LeVert showed out against the Grizzlies, scored over 40 points, and in the game that they played before the Grizzlies, the team won. 
Uh, but overall, is Kyrie being guilty of being a bad leader or is he innocent of that? I think Kyrie is definitely guilty of being a bad leader. And I think that the Nets are the team with the most talent and the worst leadership problem in the whole league because of it. Their two main pillars are guys that, I mean, they're veterans at this point. They're both been in the league eight plus seasons and they still have these negative reputations following them around about having lack of leadership. And it's because of things like this. When you are a leader of a franchise, you have to understand that it's the kind of thing where your teammates are going to go as hard and put in as much as you, the leader of that ball club is going to do. Like for example, if you saw Michael Jordan slacking off and being a bum, then you probably on the bulls would feel the same. And I'm not saying that Kyrie Irving is a bum or he's slacking off, but this whole, Oh, personal reasons. I'm not going to play for X, Y, Z. Like you can't be doing that. Like you're getting paid millions of dollars to play a game. At this point, you have to do your job. You can't just be having personal reasons. The only reason why you should be missing games is because of injury or because of a serious major event, like maybe a loss in family, basically the same types of excuses that would excuse anyone else from missing their job. You can't just say, oh, no, I didn't feel like it. And then, oh, hey, guys, I didn't feel like it, but I texted you, so it's cool. That's crap. Like, if, imagine being like someone on that team. Like Kyrie was in the game plan. You thought he was going to suit up today. You see a text in the locker room, hey, guys, I'm actually not going to play today. Uh, have some personal reasons. Just some things aren't sitting right with me. And this guy says he doesn't like media attention, but he knows that when he does something like this, he's going to invite a ton of media attention when he does this. And also, it's selfish of him because he knows that his teammates and his coach are going to be asked about it, and they're not going to know what to say because they can't tell anyone because it's not their issue. And Kyrie won't answer anybody. so you basically are, are fed to the wolves of the media to have to answer for actions that aren't even yours. And you're not even, you're not even asking questions about the game. You're asking questions about, Hey, where's Kyrie? Like that takes away from basketball and from the team. And I think when you're a leader, you can't be doing stuff like that. And I'm sure it coincided with the whole, uh, Capitol Hill siege thing. I'm sure he's trying to send a message, even though he says that he's, he hasn't come out and said that, but I'm sure it's probably having something to do with that. Regardless of that's how you feel, everybody else suited up and played. Why are you the only guy? Like, do you really feel like you are that special that you are the only guy in the NBA that can just be like, hey, no, anytime something doesn't sit right with me, I'm liable to not show up and play. Like, I would not want that guy as, as my leader personally. I think that he needs to show more maturity and realize there are some times that you're not going to want to play for one reason or another, but you're going to have to suit up and play because it's your job and you're under contract to do so. And you have a responsibility as a leader of the team to show up. So I personally think he's guilty. Yeah, we talked about it at the start of the season in one of the first two episodes that the biggest question mark for this team would be if Kyrie started having antics and based off those antics ended up crushing the team in one way or the other. And the team that they played before the Grizzlies was actually the 76ers, and they won that game pretty convincingly uh, by, I think it was 13 points, 109 to 122, the Nets won. So if the team continues to perform well, you're right. Then they go into the locker room. Uh, have you guys heard from Kyrie? 
uh, does Kyrie think that he's coming back to the team anytime soon? And it's crappy for somebody like Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, Steve Nash, whoever played well that game or just the coach who coached a good game to sit there and be like, we just beat the best team in the East. And you're asking me about somebody who's not in the locker room. So I think, yeah, if he has his own personal reasons, that's fine. I think he needs to air them out himself and say, I'm taking a stand against whatever. My wife just had a baby. I'm not feeling well because of coronavirus. Whatever the thing is so that people aren't answering for him in things. But also, I don't know if he said to Steve Nash, hey, I don't want you talking about this. So just tell people, hey, that like, we haven't really talked because I don't want to. It want just doesn't make any explain. sense. It doesn't make any sense. So the guy says he doesn't like the media, but he invites them all the time with his actions. Yeah. So I mean, this guy's uh, like a globetrotter, basically. Like, if you look at him, the guy does things on the basketball court that are insane. Like, they look incredible. Some of the things that he does, you ask yourself, how the hell did he do that? He has obviously an incredible talent. But the thing is, does that talent that he have actually equate to winning? If you look at the performance of the Nets over the last two years, not just this season, the difference in their offensive and defensive rating when Kyrie Irving does play versus when he does not, the team's net ratings are almost the same. Although he does score 27 points a game right now on efficient shooting, are those just empty stats somehow? Is Kyrie Irving more concerned with making an amazing looking play than he is with making a winning play? Honestly, he might be. I feel like maybe Kyrie cares more about doing something that looks visually impressive on a basketball court. That matters more to him than actually winning, it seems. And like as a team, that's that's not good. Like you don't want that from your best guy. Yeah, I mean, look at the Celtics. Look at the jump that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown took after Kyrie left. And overall, that team is having to play without the person that replaced Kyrie in Kemba Walker because Kemba has been injured this season. So they're having to throw Marcus Smart into the lineup. Peyton Pritchard has been another key contributor to that team. But And Peyton Pritchard is wearing Kyrie's old number 11 on that team. And I think people in Boston are respecting Peyton Pritchard more than they did Kyrie because Kyrie... Yeah, he contributed for the team, but it was always a distraction. It was always something with him. So, yeah, I we talked about it at the beginning, talked about it now. He just needs to grow up, and he needs to be a professional in the league. Yeah, and if he's, if he's not really, missing time with injuries, <laughs> there's always something. He's either missing time because he has a broken God knows what. He's, he's seemingly injured everything you can. And when he's not injured, then it seems like he has a mental problem that, that stops him. Oh, yeah, no, I have an issue with something. I'm healthy, but no, I'm not playing today. No, you can't have that for a franchise player. And I think that it's one thing to have, like, you know, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan have been courageous and come out and said, like, I dealt with mental health issues. But it's those guys, even though they dealt with it, seem to have hired the right therapy or therapists, taken care of it during the offseason and trained for it the way that they trained a physical injury, which... I feel is something that you should be doing if you're trying to get your mind right and your body right. But for Kyrie to continue to have those lapses and continue to do that mid-season um, rather than taking a full hiatus, but even when you do that, come out and say it. Come out and write something in the Players' Tribune. Come out and say it 
I don't think uh, Kyrie or, Irving actually has a condition, though. That's the thing. I don't think that he has a diagnosable condition the way that those guys that you mentioned did. And I don't think that he believes that he has a condition either. I'm not saying that he has one, but I know that he definitely doesn't believe he has one. That's why he's not coming out and saying that he has one. He just is a diva. He doesn't have, like, depression. He's just like a petulant child who, when they, they don't like something, they're like, oh, I'm going to have a little tantrum. Like... That's that's what he is. Yeah, and it's well, we go from talking about the consummate professional and Bradley Beal to uh, the petulant child and, and Kyrie Irving. I would so, take. I know that Bradley Beal can't do as cool of looking stuff as Kyrie, but I would rather have him on my team any day. Ten, ten times out of ten, I would too. All right, moving on to a newcomer to the league, Anthony Edwards, the first overall pick for the Timberwolves. Had a breakout performance of 26 points and a loss to the Blazers, but then follows it up with a mental lapse at the end of OT in the Spurs game by turning it over in a wide-open game-tying opportunity. Is Anthony Edwards guilty of being a low-IQ player or simply a rookie learning the ropes? Honestly, I have to say he must be guilty of being a low-IQ player because I can't think of any player that was a high IQ player that has ever made a mistake like this at any point in their career, because this is something that even you playing a video game of basketball probably wouldn't make this mistake. Like what it was, was, I mean, you could kind of see his thought process go on. Like as it happened, the guy is in overtime. They're down by three points. He catches the ball on the perimeter at the three point line. He basically, or right near the three-point line, he has the ability to take the open three-pointer. There's only a a few seconds left. He has to take it to tie the game. But he wanted the highlight play. He wanted to go in for the dunk. But then halfway in, he realized, oh, crap, like, I can't dunk it right now. Like, if I dunk it, we'll lose. Like, we need three, not two. And, like, we'll only have, like, a fraction of a second left over if if I do the dunk. So he, like, realizes this mid-drive, he regrets, he jumps up mid-air, tries to kick it back out for a three, gets the ball stolen, turnover, game over. I don't think that that has anything to do with a rookie learning the X's and O's and learning the game of basketball and like having to get acclimated. Like that is something that is so basic and fundamental. Like if you were someone in high school and you made that mistake, you'd be chewed out by your coach. I don't know any high IQ player that has ever made a mistake like that in such a high stakes situation. The game ending play of overtime after you've expended so much energy to get to that point, your team has lost six in a row at this point and you blow it like this. I think that it's just a sign that he's a low IQ player and honestly, I know that I've been bashing him a lot, but I think that Anthony Edwards is J.R. Smith 2.0. I think that he's the kind of guy that he could do some incredible looking stuff. I, I, I mean, J.R. Smith, when he was with the Nuggets, a lot of you right now are, are looking at me like crazy, like, oh, J.R. Smith sucks. How can you say that? There was a time when J.R. Smith was with the Nuggets that he was very reminiscent of Anthony Edwards. Freak athleticism could jump out of the gym, similar height and length, similar position, similar shooting ability in streaks and bunches, could occasionally get really hot from outside, 
and hit from the outside, pull up games, some handles here and there, but just maddeningly inconsistent. He could have 41 game, but then like the next two or three, he can't break 20. Then he'll randomly have 30. I think that's Anthony Edwards' future. He's going to be a guy that is maddening because every now and then he'll give you a game where you're like, but why can't you be this all the time? But he's just, he can't be that all the time because mentally to be consistent, you also have to have a certain level of mental fortitude, which I think plays like the one he just showed you last night. It just shows that he lacks it. So I think that we're, we're witnessing the second coming of J.R. Smith. An interesting comparison. Uh, it's, it, it's also interesting that he made a clutch three-pointer earlier in the game and then went ahead and didn't take that shot. Um, I hope that this is something that he'll just continue to remember every single game. And players like to say, well, I don't dwell on the past. I always look forward. But there's definitely seminal moments in everybody's career where they go, if I'd have done that one thing or if I hadn't have done that one thing, the outcome would have been completely different. So I hope this is something that he looks back to when making some play like that and grows from it and doesn't turn into uh, shirtless J.R. Smith. Um, moving on, Miami Heat, known for their excellent draft record of usually getting the best player available with the pick they get. This year, they seemingly had a winner in Precious Achua at 20. However, the Kentucky brethren, Tyrese Maxey, just scored 39 for the 76ers and he was available and was expected to be the Miami Heat player that was selected. Is Miami finally guilty for not having selected the best player available to them this time? Uh, this one honestly is so hard to say because it's so early right now. And also Precious is performing pretty well. That's not to say that Precious is not doing well. It's just that you have to wonder. I know a lot of Heat fans were upset when Precious was chosen because they didn't know about him. They didn't know who he was. All they knew was Tyrese Maxey, and it seemed like a lock. They were already not expecting for Tyrese Maxey to drop to the number 20 pick. A lot of people were shocked he was still there. So a lot of people thought that 100%, if Tyrese Maxey was available, that he were definitely going to take him. But ultimately, I do think that the Heat made the right choice. I know that Tyrese Maxey had 39 points already, which is incredible to do in your rookie season. And he's also been shooting really efficiently from the field, 48% from the field, 36% from three, already averaging double figures, 10 points per game off the bench, playing a vital key role for the 76ers. So he has definitely shown more scoring punch to this point than Precious Achua has. But we also have to consider that they've been in slightly different situations. Precious Achua was a player that was drafted mostly because of the defensive versatility that he offers and the potential upside when you compare his athleticism with his size. Tyrese Maxey was always the more polished scorer coming in. I think that the Heat were going with upside with Precious Achua. Tyrese Maxey's six foot two. And I think that right now the Heat are kind of guard heavy it'd be hard to carve out a rotation spot for him when you have Duncan Robinson starting at shooting guard. Jimmy Butler plays a lot of guard for them. Tyler Hero starts at point guard. You have Andre Iguodala off the bench that plays some guard. You have Avery Bradley. You have Kendrick Nunn, who maybe they still haven't sold out complete hope on. You have Goran Dragic. These are all guys that 
I find it really hard for Tyrese Maxey to have carved out any playing time behind, barring a trade to open up some time for him. I think that they needed positionally the fit that Achua offers, a guy who could essentially come in and do everything that Adebayo can do, albeit not at the same level right now, but he's a stopgap for them. And I think they realized in the playoffs last season, they had a huge drop-off in their defensive production, in their rebounding, and in their general offensive scoring in the paint whenever Adebayo would sit. So I think they really, the Heat were looking at, okay, Tyrese Maxey's a very polished score right now. We believe in him. But for our current roster construction, we think that Precious Achua is a better fit positionally and probably offers more long-term upside. So I think it's just too soon to tell right now. Yeah, I agree with a lot of your points. I, I would say the other thing to think about with the Heat is I think if they would have kept Jay Crowder and not taken Avery Bradley, then it may have made some sense to take Tyrese Maxey over Precious Achua. But I still think with the points that you said, having somebody who would be in the paint, having somebody who has that lateral quickness, cover multiple positions, having somebody who has all those effort plays like Precious has had already this season while also scoring efficiently. I think he's number one in the league from a rookie standpoint and field goal percentage. So I think Precious will blossom into a better offensive threat. I think defensively he has done well and from an effort standpoint is doing everything that the heat culture tries to bring out in people. Pat Riley and Eric Spolster will not play a rookie unless they are conditioned and are making those effort plays that Precious has, that Tyler did, that Bam did. So I think they did pick the right player as well, but Tyrese Maxey definitely is going to be a great contributor. The other thing is you have to think about situationally why he scored 39. He was one of seven players on the 76ers after the Seth Curry COVID test. and High Simmons. Yeah, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid sitting out. So he's playing 30-plus, probably 40 minutes for the game, scoring a point per minute. So you expect a player that is a polished scorer to be able to do that. So not surprising there. Still think that he did choose the right people. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. All right. Well, that's the end of our segment. What's the verdict? Tune in next week for our next segment. But wanted to uh, subpoena some people to have them come show up to court. Honestly, we need Steve Nash to show up to the court of opinion to give his statement on the Kyrie situation. I know that Steve Nash is a very optimistic, happy guy. He probably was excited about the prospect of working with two offensive talents like Kyrie and Kevin Durant, being an offensive-minded guy himself. But Steve, come talk to us. You have to be annoyed about this Kyrie thing. There's no way that you believe what Kyrie Irving is doing is okay right now. And I know you probably have some thoughts on it. We'd love to hear them. Another person we want to call to the court, Dan Levitard, Miami native is leaving ESPN and yesterday came out that he is creating his own content network. So Dan, want to have you and Papi on the show to discuss this new content network and what you guys are expecting. All right. Sounds great. Catch us on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Court of Opinion. I'm Mike Stir. And I'm Mary Gonzalez. Like us, subscribe to us on 
Apple, Bullhorn, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. We are also now on YouTube. See you next week. Court is adjourned.